Pray with me, please. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This is a rich text. This is a text where you and I could spend weeks, months, years, perhaps the remainder of our lives of discipleship, soaking in the meaning of what it means to be connected to the vine of Christ, what it means to be a branch in the body of Christ, what it means to produce fruit that brings glory to God. This is a rich text. The context of this text is important as well. I want you to think about the passage of time, the period of time, and the distance traveled between where the Last Supper took place and where prayers were offered in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the lesson taught during that period of time. Jesus was likely walking through a vineyard. You and I know he's prone to take what is ordinary and available in human life and lift it up and use it as an example, a tangible thing to remember that points to something that's intangible and shall never be forgotten. It's in that context. It's, it's after the washing of their feet. It's, it's after the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's after saying to them, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. If you do not allow me to do this for you, then you have no share in me. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but all of me. Oh, but you are already clean, but not all of you. Judas is not with the disciples any longer during this period of time, during this walk from the events that took place in the upper room to the events that will soon take place in the Garden of Gethsemane. The context of this text is important. The disciples are likely walking along fairly quietly. Jesus is instructing them. During this walk through the garden, Jesus promises them the Holy Spirit, reminds them that he is the way to the Father, and then shares this about the vine and the branches. When Nancy was sharing with me what she was going to share with the children, and I made the comment about, well, one of the things you could tell them would be that the dead branches burn faster. It grows right out of this text. It's one thing to have our lives be aflame with the Holy Spirit. It's another thing for our lives to be so dry, to be so unfruitful, that they would only be useful for being burned. I hope that my encouragement to you today is to choose to live a life that is fruit-bearing, a life that is intimately connected to Jesus Christ, a life that remains and abides in him, that he might remain and abide in you. There are several things that are tucked into the 11 verses that are before us today that I don't want us to miss. The first one is in the very first verse. Note the importance that Jesus places on whether or not our lives are productive, whether or not they produce in faithfulness to God. No fruit cut off. Those who produce fruit get pruned so as to produce more fruit. Does either one of these options sound good to the branch? <laughs> You're the branch, right? 
Does either one of these options sound good to you? No fruit, cut off. Fruit, <laughs> pruning shears. <laughs> so as to produce more fruit. It occurs to me in reading this that the feelings of the branch are really not taken into account. Only the will of the vine dresser. It's only God's desire, God's will, God's intent for human life, God's purpose and God's plan that really matter. How you and I happen to feel about it? Apparently not highly significant. Does that mean that God doesn't care how I feel? No, God cares intimately about how I feel, but my feelings are not of equal importance, nor do they bear the same weight as the eternal will of God that will be worked out in human history. I can choose to be a part of that by remaining in Christ and producing a harvest of righteousness for him, or I will be cut off, set aside, thrown into the fire. Another way of saying that is, God is going to get the rubbish out of his way so that he can do his will. Well, that's not very good news. Let's see what else this text has. Well, we shouldn't miss this. Jesus is very clear in this passage that we show ourselves to be his disciples by the fruit we bear. Well, that's a little more positive. At least makes the assumption that I'm going to be a fruit-bearing disciple. But this is one of those if-then things. If... We produce the right kinds of fruit, then we show ourselves to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. You can imagine there's a flip side to this, right? If we produce other varieties of fruit, guess whose disciples we show ourselves to be? It's not a trick question. If we produce the right kind of fruit, you know what they are? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, Faithfulness and self-control. Galatians 5.22, if you've never examined the fruits of the Spirit that we are expected to produce in our lives, not one of them, but all of them, first and foremost, love. These are the fruits that God is looking for in his harvest in our lives. If we produce this kind of fruit, we show ourselves to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. If, however, we produce fruits like hate, joylessness, contempt, anger, hostility, faithlessness, hardness of heart, self-indulgence, then we show ourselves to be someone's disciple. But it is not Christ. It is his enemy, the devil himself. What Jesus is saying is, by looking at the fruits of our lives, people can tell whose disciple we really are. Guess what? That means it actually makes no difference if we're out there telling them we're Christians. If the fruit of our lives smells like rotten fruit, they're going to know it. Good fruit comes from those who remain in Christ, those who are connected to the vine of Christ. How do I know that? Because Christ can't produce any of those hateful things. Christ is God and God is love, and he can only produce good fruit. If our lives are producing something other than the fruits of the Spirit. We better check what we're rooted in. Here's the real nugget, though, I think, of today's text. In the span of 11 verses, the same word appears 11 times. When things are repeated in Scripture, we are supposed to pay attention to them. Repetition is not just something that 
modern educators know works for teaching people to remember something. The good teacher, the great teacher, the one whose word we are seeking to saturate our lives with, knows that we learn through repetition. He made us that way. And when a word is repeated 11 times in the span of 11 verses, we are intended to remember it. It is translated abide, and it is translated remain. But it is the same word. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Listen to it again. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Abide in me and your life will produce. If you abide in me and I abide in you, your life will be worth living. If you do not abide in me, there will be consequences and your life will end in futility. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, there will be rewards and they will be great. Now, Abide in my love. If you obey my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and abide in his love. You and I are called to remain in Christ, to abide in him, that he might remain and abide in us. I've got one story to tell you. It has three different endings. They all grow out of today's texts. So listen up. There was a knock at the door. The child ran to answer it. Expectantly, he opened the door and a fearsome, angry man barked at him. Have you found Jesus? The child shuddered, left the door ajar, ran screaming to his mother up the stairs to the back of the house. He sought her with a tear-streaked face. Almost out of breath, he fell on her. She gathered him up and said, what's wrong? Between sobs, she made this out. God's at the door and he seems, it seems, He's lost Jesus. He's going door to door looking for him, and I don't know where he is, but I'm afraid of saying so. The boy spoke more truth than he knew. There was a knock at the door. Child ran to answer it. Expectantly, he opened the door. Fearsome looking man barked at him. Have you found Jesus? The child shuddered, left the door ajar, ran screaming to his mother up the stairs to the back of the house. He sought her with a tear-streaked face. He fell on her, and she gathered him up in her arms, and she said, what's wrong? And between sobs, he howled, he knows, he knows. Who is he, and what does he know, she said. God's at the door, and he knows we've been hiding Jesus. I think he's come to take him away from us. Ah, the child spoke more truth. Then he knew. I know you're looking for a happy ending, so here it comes. There was 
a knock at the door. The child ran to answer it. Expectantly, the child opened the door. A fearsome, angry-looking man barked at him. Have you found Jesus? The child shuddered, steadied himself, blinked, smiled, looked the man square in the eye, and said with all confidence, Sir, don't be afraid. Jesus is not lost. He lives right here in my heart. If you ask the children of this congregation where Jesus is, they're going to give you several answers. They're going to tell you that he's in heaven with God. They're going to tell you that he's everywhere by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're going to tell you that he lives right here in their hearts because they have heard him knocking. The truth is, all three of the answers that were offered by the boy are correct. According to today's text, there are a lot of people who don't know where Jesus is, but they're afraid to say so. There are a lot of Christians who have been keeping it a secret from the world that Christ is their Savior. They have been hiding him. They are non-fruit-producing branches. And in today's text is a word of condemnation. They will be cut off. And then there is... The faithful answer, don't be afraid. Jesus isn't lost. He's right here in my heart. But I'm not sure that's a full answer to the question. Today's sermon title poses a simple, seeming contradiction. You in Christ or Christ in you. 20th century American evangelicalism has taught us to focus, like the boy in the story, on whether or not Jesus is in us, whether or not we have him in our heart, whether or not he is enthroned in our lives. Do you have Jesus in your heart? It's a common evangelical question to ask. And the Bible affirms this approach. In Colossians 1.27, it says, Christ in you is your hope of glory. Christ in you is your hope of glory. But over and over again, God reveals in his word that the real question is not whether Christ is in us, but whether or not we are in him. Christ cannot be held captive by one human heart. He is not found in us. We are found in him. He is not like a little added ingredient to our lives that makes the bread rise. He is the bread of life. It is not about Christ just being in us. It is about us abiding, remaining, being steadfastly connected to and serving as conduits of Jesus Christ himself. He finds in us willing vessels, conduits, ambassadors, servants, agents, we find in him a savior and Lord. I'm afraid that many people think about Jesus as an inoculation, an inoculation against sin and death. They show up for worship on Sunday mornings for little booster shots because they have seen the symptoms of sin arise in their everyday lives. I hate to tell you, God is not going to be mocked like that. The eternal, almighty, all-powerful God cannot be reduced to something that we use 
to incrementally improve our lives, or as a once-a-week pain reliever that we take to survive the grief we experience. Jesus came from heaven to earth and went from the earth to the cross and the cross to the grave and the grave to the sky for a lot more than that. He came so that we who lived under the condemnation of sin and death might find salvation in ourselves, heavens no, in him, Christ gave his life that in him we might find a life worth living. His one body was broken so that we who were broken might become one body in him. Though divisions persist in the world, in Christ, in Christ, not in you and me, in Christ, there is no longer Greek nor Jew, there is no longer male nor female, there is no longer slave nor free in Christ. In Christ, we are as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new is even now becoming an eternal reality. Those things are not happening because Jesus is in us, but because we are in him. It's good to know the answer to the question, is Christ in you? Because it is something we can say I tangibly asked for. I asked for Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to come into my life, to be enthroned in my heart, to hold each one of my thoughts captive to his word. You and I can answer the question, is Christ in you? Because each one of us knows whether or not we've ever asked him to be, whether or not we've ever opened the door and let him in. But as we mature in our faith, it is important for us to understand the other side of that coin, the side of the coin that actually bears out more value in this life. Christ in me is the hope of glory. It is the hope of salvation. Me in Christ is the hope of abundant life here and now. Having Christ in us, having received him as Savior and Lord, guarantees salvation. Abiding, remaining in Christ, living in Christ as a branch of his eternal vine gives me the abundant life Jesus came to grant. Do you see why both are important? Why I want us to have not only Christ in us, but for us to be in Christ so that we might bear much fruit, even a hundredfold. As Christians, as the body of Christ in the world today, if we are in Christ, nothing is impossible. Nothing. We should remove the word from our vocabulary. He says himself, if you are in me, if you abide in me, if you remain in me, nothing is impossible. Nothing. But apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. Which means that all the good we might do in this life, if it is done apart from Christ, counts as nothing to him. I don't know about you, but I wanna be in the nothing is impossible category, not the nothing you do matters category. Abiding in Christ, remaining in him, being connected to him, letting him use us, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our time, our resources, our gifts, our talents, our networks, our everything. Allowing Christ to permeate all of that 
and work through us as we remain in him guarantees that nothing will be impossible. This is my hope for each one of us today. If someone comes knocking at your door, whether or not it's a man or a woman and whether or not their countenance is angry or winsome, that's not the point of the story. They come knocking at your door. The question might not be framed exactly this way, but you know what they're asking. Have you found Jesus? I hope you will smile broadly and confidently and say to them, friend, worry not, he is not lost. He lives right here in my heart. He holds every one of my thoughts captive to his word. He is working right now his will out in my life. He has sealed me with the promised Holy Spirit, and he is even now standing guard at my heart against the evil one. And Christ not only lives in me, but I, I live in him. In fact, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. In Christ, I find my help and my salvation. In him, I find my comforter, my companion, my joy. In him, I have life, both eternal evermore and abundant here and now. In Christ, I am made a new creation. In fact, he's working on that right now to reshape and reform transform me according to his will to give me purpose and power and eternal divine protection. Have I found Jesus? No, but praise be to God that he has found me. For once I was lost, now I am found. And I am not only found, I am deeply rooted and grounded in his love where I intend to abide and remain forevermore. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Me? In Christ, that's abundant life. Let us pray. Holy God, grant that by the Spirit of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we might abide and remain in you always. And may, Lord God, our lives become patterned after his, lives of loving service, poured out in sacrifice for one another. In his name we ask it.